0: This episode, Differential Diagnosis for Inflammatory Back Pain, is sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. The host and speaker have been compensated for their time. This program is intended for healthcare professionals. Here's your host, Dr. Ethan Craig.
1: Axial spondyloarthritis, or AXPA for short, often invokes in our mind the picture of a stoop patient with advanced ankylosing spondylitis. The other thing it often invokes for us is the picture of a patient that's suffering from prolonged morning stiffness involving the lower back. This group of pain is called inflammatory back pain, which will sometimes shortened to IBP, and it's often associated with axial spondyloarthritis. But patients with IBP don't necessarily have axial spondyloarthritis, and vice versa. So in this episode, we're going to dig into this entity of inflammatory back pain, what it means diagnostically, and how to approach the workup of inflammatory back pain. I'm Dr. Ethan Craig. Joining me to define inflammatory back pain and discuss how to approach the diagnosis of it is Dr. Leanne Gensler. Dr. Gensler is a rheumatologist and the director of the UCSF Spondyloarthritis Clinic at the University of California San Francisco Medical Center. Dr. Gensler, thanks so much for being with us here today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: To start us off, Dr. Gensler, how can you define inflammatory back pain for us, and how does it differ from other types of back pain that we'll talk about, like mechanical back pain?
2: Yes, thanks Thanks for asking sort of this introductory question. So, you know, inflammatory back pain, first of all, is a symptom complex. You can use it actually as an ICD-9 code or 10 code, but it is really a complex of symptoms that suggest patients that may have an inflammatory cause for their back pain but don't necessarily have true primary inflammation. So the features of inflammatory back pain really include those patients that develop back pain at a young age, typically before the age of 40. They have had it for a while. It usually starts insidiously, not acutely, like some forms of back pain. And in patients with inflammatory back pain, their symptoms are usually more prominent in the morning when they wake up, associated with morning stiffness that lasts more than 30 minutes, and gets better with exercise or as people start to move around. In addition, some patients have pain in the middle of the night, the second part of the night, that is bad enough to wake them up and have them get up, walk around, sometimes take some over-the-counter non-steroidals to help improve the pain. Patients often respond to non-steroidal anti inflammatory So it's these components of inflammatory back pain that help to differentiate from those patients with more mechanical types of back pain. There's a mnemonic that some people will use called eye pain and that really helps us remember that this is insidious, that pain may be at night, that the age of onset is less than 40, that it improves with exercise, and that there is no improvement with rest. Of patients with inflammatory back pain, a minority of them will have a true inflammatory cause for their back pain. And so that suggests to us that actually this is much more prevalent in the population than just patients with axial arthritis. And so if you look at population-level data, even from the United States, you'll see that 5 to 6% of the U.S. population will have inflammatory back pain, and, you know, 1 in 5 of those patients may actually have axial arthritis.
1: We do do a lot of talking about inflammatory back pain when we're discussing spondyloarthritis. So what role does the presence of inflammatory back pain have in diagnosis of spondyloarthritis?
2: Yeah, it's a great question because we really do talk about it as the hallmark feature of axial spondyloarthritis. But yet I've just said that it's actually not that specific. And it's, in fact, not that sensitive. And so I do think, you know, as clinicians, it's always important to get a history. And this is one of the historical features that we can ascertain. So in a patient with inflammatory back pain, I do think it's important that we consider could there be a true inflammatory cause for their back pain from an entity like axial arthritis. But we shouldn't anchor so much to it that we think, oh, this makes the diagnosis. It's only one part of our clinical reasoning as we're considering these patients.
1: And then if we take a step back, then that begs a question, are there any conditions other than spondyloarthritis that we should be specifically considering when you see a patient with inflammatory back pain that you think may or may not be due to spondyloarthritis?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, just common things being common, back pain is a very common entity in patients. And certainly patients with nonspecific back pain or degenerative causes for back pain may meet criteria for inflammatory back pain without them having a primary inflammatory cause for their back pain. But there are other conditions to think about too, including patients with DISH or diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperastosis. And then there are more concerning You know, diagnoses that I do think is important for us to consider, including infection, which of course is inflammatory, but for other reasons, whether it be of the spine or of the sacroiliac joints, malignancy certainly can be at play, whether it's of the bone itself or in the setting of hematologic malignancies like leukemias. And then fractures can present with inflammatory features. In particular, we'll see those as
1: insufficiency
2: fractures in people with low bone density, or after delivery of a baby in a woman.
1: So in a patient that you see in clinic that, you know, this patient immediately has inflammatory back pain, clearly kind of fits that picture, but doesn't seem to have a diagnosis of arthritis. Maybe you look and don't see any of the other clear pathologies that you just mentioned. Do we know anything about kind of how these patients behave over time? What comes of these patients with inflammatory back pain over time?
2: it's a hard question to answer because it assumes that you have complete follow-up on patients that present with inflammatory back pain. So I think any publications that look at this or any studies that really look at this are going to have some bias associated with them.
1: So Dr. Gensler, if we look at a specific example then, how would you approach, say, a patient that has inflammatory back pain and is found to be positive for HLA-B27 but doesn't have any other apparent features, at least, of spa?
2: Yeah. So... When you have those two features alone, inflammatory back pain and HLA-B27, then you can think about what is the probability of having the diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis. And so based on sensitivity and specificity and then likelihood ratios, you can actually create a likelihood product and convert that to a probability. And so with these two features alone, the probability of having a diagnosis of axial arthritis is 59%. So it certainly is high enough that you should be asking other questions and making sure that you've ascertained all the data necessary to really make sure you can diagnose or rule out a patient with axial spondyloarthritis. So What you're asking here is when you don't have any other features, and my question back would be, well, have you collected all the features you need, the data that you need to really determine whether the patient has the diagnosis? And so a lot of the data that is necessary here is really imaging data. And, you know, x-ray we know is poorly sensitive and actually terrible with regards to precision. So if you do an x-ray, and, and there's even controversy as to whether that should be the first imaging study, and that's negative, you really do need to go on to an MRI to determine whether the patient has sacroiliitis, which would confirm the diagnosis for you. However, even in the presence of a negative MRI, so you do the imaging, workup, up, you ask all the relevant questions, and all you're left with is inflammatory back pain and an HLA-B27 test. Then the question becomes, well, if the patient doesn't have the diagnosis today, number one, what explains their symptoms? And then number two, could they be in a preclinical state? And I think it's really important to consider that, particularly in young patients that may just not have fully evolved yet to a clinical picture, because they will be at risk in the presence of these two features of going on to develop axial spond arthritis, and it may take active monitoring of them, to make sure that they don't evolve. So I think we need to be careful as clinicians in saying you do not have a diagnosis and you can be on your way and live your happy life, especially in a young patient that may still be at risk.
1: One thing you've outlined previously is really some of the strengths, but also a lot of the weaknesses of the concept of inflammatory back pain and the limited sensitivity and specificity. So if you're thinking about non-rheumatologists, do you see the concept of inflammatory back pain having a clear role for non-rheumatologists and picking out people to get to us?
2: Yeah, I mean, I always see a role in getting more of a history. A lot of our diagnosis comes from history alone. And so this is a cheap test just to determine the features of a patient's type of pain and at least lets us then... Consider our differential diagnosis as we're considering the reasons for the patient's inflammatory back pain. So yeah, especially I, I think there are certain providers that are seeing patients for back pain in particular or musculoskeletal conditions, so sports medicine, orthopedics, primary care. These are easy questions to ask and then may allow us to ask additional more specific questions or go on to testing that has healthcare cost and utilization implications that we shouldn't be doing in everyone. So I think it does help refine our differential and allow us to then go on to additional tests, and it's cheap.
1: And that's a great way to round out our discussion on this topic. And I really want to thank my guest, Dr. Leanne Gensler, for sharing her perspectives on inflammatory back pain and its role in diagnosing spondyloarthritis and other conditions. Dr. Gensler, it was great speaking with you today. Thank you.
0: Thank you. This industry podcast was sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. This episode, differentiating fibromyalgia and axial spondyloarthritis. Can these conditions co-occur? Is sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. The host and speaker have been compensated for their time. This program is intended for healthcare professionals. Here's your host, Dr. Ethan Craig.
1: Many patients with fibromyalgia may present with symptoms that look consistent with axial spondyloarthritis. These patients with overlapping symptoms can make reaching an accurate diagnosis of spondyloarthritis, or for that matter, fibromyalgia, challenging, especially in cases with borderline features. So how can we improve the diagnosis of these patients? I'm Dr. Ethan Craig. Joining me to take a look at this challenging scenario and discuss how to work through it is Dr. Leanne Gensler. Dr. Gensler is a rheumatologist and the director of the UCSF uh, Spondyloarthritis Clinic at the University of California San Francisco Medical Center. Dr. Gensler, thank you for being here today.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
1: So let's start with some background. Dr. Gensler, how often do we see fibromyalgia co-occurring with axial spondyloarthritis?
2: Yeah, so of course, I guess that just depends on how are both the diagnosis of axial spinal arthritis and fibromyalgia being made. And it's really a challenge to make both of these diagnoses in the same patient because it requires that we have said the patient with axial spinal arthritis does not have disease activity that's driving the pain. And the reason why there is overlap in some of these presentations is that we know patients with axial spinal arthritis may have enthesitis, and many of the areas that would be tender at enthesial insertion points could be also tender in the setting of fibromyalgia. So it's a challenging entity to disentangle. Based on literature out there, the range of fibromyalgia co-occurrence in patients with axial spondyloarthritis is probably somewhere between 16 and 30%. But many of the studies that have assessed this have not necessarily excluded patients with true active axial arthritis.
1: And one of the areas, as you mentioned, that can be particularly challenging in diagnosing these conditions is differentiating those fibromyalgia tender points, as it were, from enthesitis. Is there a reliable way to distinguish these two entities?
2: In some areas. So for example, the Achilles tendon insertion or the plantar fascia insertion on the calcaneus isn't really a fibromyalgia tender point. In addition, areas like the patellar tendon insertion on the tibial tuberosity, that's a fairly bony structure. And so in the setting of true inflammation, sometimes that area is warm and swollen. That should not be a fibromyalgia tender point or an area of tenderness. Even in a patient with axial spondyloarthritis, I think when there are many entheseal tender points, that should be a red flag to you that it is probably less likely coming from active enthesitis than possibly being driven by more of a widespread pain syndrome. So I think part of it is the location of the tender points, and if there's objective inflammation, that's obviously not fibromyalgia, and then part of it is how many areas are tender. And the more tender areas they are, polyanthesial tenderness is less likely driven by spondyloarthritis. So those are some of the clinical ways for us to think about differences. Of course, you can use objective imaging studies to look for enthesial inflammation and an easy point of care study, if you do ultrasound in your clinic, could be to look at inflammation by ultrasound. You can certainly send a patient to get a musculoskeletal ultrasound in radiology. And then I sometimes, if I'm not sure, will actually go on to MRI because in the patients with true enthesitis, they will also have bone marrow edema of the bony area where the entheses inserts. So I do think when you're not sure, even despite these clinical features, using objective measures to look for inflammation can be helpful.
1: So another factor that can be really challenging is considering disease activity in patients that you think have axial spondyloarthritis, but also a component of fibromyalgia. So how do you approach disease activity monitoring in patients with comorbid fibromyalgia, and what do you use to monitor these patients?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So I do measure disease activity at every visit. By using a specific PRO, patient-reported outcome, I use the BASDI, and then I also calculate the ASDAS, which adds in the patient global and typically the CRP. And so in a patient with fibromyalgia and axial spondyloarthritis, these may be high, but by following them over time, as I tell patients, they are their own control. And so when I see improvement, even if it still persists as being high, that is helpful to me. And stability is helpful to me, as opposed to not knowing where a patient was before and just reporting a high degree of pain and symptoms or fatigue. I also, from a PRO standpoint with the Basdi, certain of the questions, if you look at the components, is really helpful. So I'll see a patient with high disease activity, and then I'll look back at the components, and I'll see that actually the thing that is really high today is fatigue, And fatigue, obviously, is nonspecific. It certainly could be a manifestation of active inflammation. But if that's the only thing that's up and actually the patient's axial symptoms are better or stable, that suggests maybe something else is driving the overall disease activity.
1: Dr. Gensler, what do we know about the impact of having fibromyalgia on outcomes for patients with axial spondyloarthritis in the long term?
2: Yeah. So in the setting of both conditions, you can imagine that if we're measuring response to treatment by symptoms of pain and fatigue and patient global, then those may be less responsive to immunomodulatory treatment than thinking about the patient more sort of holistically and approaching all of the ways pain manifests. So I think we just need to be realistic in a patient that has both access arthritis and fibromyalgia, doesn't mean that they don't warrant the same treatment, but in terms of expecting them to reach remission or responding as well as a patient that only has axial arthritis, there may be a difference. I think it's typically our female patients that are diagnosed with fibromyalgia more and in fact misdiagnosed with fibromyalgia over axial arthritis. And so we do need to be careful as clinicians not biasing our approach to patients' treatment recommendations based on the presence of fibromyalgia or considering fibromyalgia as the primary driver of their pain. Every patient with axial spinal arthritis deserves treatment if they have symptoms that would warrant that or could improve. And I think it's sometimes only after we've treated those patients that we are left with saying, well, what's residual may be driven by fibromyalgia. So this comorbid condition could actually hurt patients if we were really focused on the fibromyalgia.
1: Based on what we know then, how often do you think we might be misclassifying in the other direction, misclassifying patients with fibromyalgia as having axial spondyloarthritis, both clinically and in the research environment?
2: Yeah. So I think that definitely happens. This is the overdiagnosis as opposed to the underdiagnosis. It more typically happens in patients with non-radiographic disease, because the MRI findings, we're still learning about MRI as a biomarker and understanding what the implications of bone marrow edema are, for example. And so in the setting of radiographic disease, if you truly have damage to the sacroiliac joints, in particular with extensive damage, i.e. large erosions or pseudo-widening of the joint or joint space narrowing or partial ankylosis or full ankylosis, there is no question that's a patient with radiographic axial arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis. But it's the other group, the patients that don't have a lot of damage that may be diagnosed with axial arthritis, who may actually have fibromyalgia.
1: Great. You know, well, with those final thoughts in mind, I want to thank my guest for helping us in thinking about differentiation of XPA from fibromyalgia and how we approach those difficult patients that do have both conditions. And Dr. Gensler, it was great speaking with you today. Thank you.
0: Thank you. This industry podcast was sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. This episode, Treatment Escalation in Axial Spondyloarthritis, A Look at How and When, is sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. The host and speaker have been compensated for their time. This program is intended for healthcare professionals. Here's your host, Dr. Ethan Craig.
1: There are several factors to keep in mind when considering how to escalate treatment for patients with axial spondyloarthritis, including considerations of how to apply treatment escalation to possible outcomes, therapeutic options for patients, and evidence supporting the role of treatment escalation and disease modification, On today's episode, we're going to focus on how to apply outcome measures in axial spondyloarthritis to decisions on treatment escalation, available therapies, and how to apply the idea of treat to target to patients with spondyloarthritis. I'm Dr. Ethan Craig. Joining me to explore this idea of treatment escalation for patients with axial spondyloarthritis is Dr. Leanne Gensler. Dr. Gensler is a rheumatologist and the director of the UCSF Spondyloarthritis Clinic at the University of California San Francisco Medical Center. Dr. Gensler, thanks for being here today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So maybe a good starting point would be just a brief overview of some of the devices we use for measuring disease activity in patients with axial spondyloarthritis. So Dr. Gensler, what tools do you typically use in practice to measure this?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously when a patient comes in to see you in clinic, you always start with an open-ended question, how are you doing? And I think that crude assessment sometimes gets you to a place where The patient may say, I feel fantastic, I have no symptoms, that's really helpful to me. I have more pain, I have stiffness, those are also helpful because it allows you then to ask more questions. I do like to quantify patients' disease activity, and I use the same outcome measure every visit so that I'm able to look at it over time with an individual patient. So for me, I use Spondylarthritis specific disease, and in particular, I use the Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Disease Activity Index, or BASDI. I also like to measure function. I think functional impairment, we know if people are very impaired, it will have an impact on their long-term outcomes. And so I measure the BASFI, the Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Functional Index, and then, because we know in axial spondylarthritis that disease activity is actually better measured by an ASDAS, the Ankylosing Spondylitis Disease Activity Score, I do use the ASDAS, which draws from the BASDI and includes the patient global and C reactive protein. In general rheumatology practice, the RAPID3 is used because it can be used generically across patients of many disease states. So, I know that is being used in the community. And I think. The point is that if you're measuring something, you can compare it within an individual patient over time. So those are the measures that I like to use and other measures that people are using. But I think measuring something is helpful for the individual patient. In particular, for axial arthritis, patients often come into clinic and they give you a gestalt of how they're doing. But actually, when you measure it quantitatively, it may actually look different. And that's because... These patients tend to accommodate over time. They've had their disease a long time, and so there is a new normal for them that you may not get to the burden of disease by just asking them, how are you doing today? And I find by being able to quantify their symptom burden gives me a little bit of a better sense than what they are sometimes telling me.
1: And if we're going to ultimately kind of ask the question of treating to target, maybe the next question is to pivot a little bit and ask, what do we know right now as far as what are therapeutics like NSAIDs and biologics? What kind of impact do they make on long-term outcomes for patients with XPA?
2: Yeah, so we didn't really talk about whether we should treat patients to target, but just in terms of what are our tools in our toolbox. So I think the first thing in axial spinal arthritis is to consider that not all the tools need to be pharmacologic. This really requires a very holistic approach to treatment, including both pharmacologic treatments and non-pharmacologic interventions like physical therapy, exercise, counseling on healthy weight management, smoking cessation... All of those things are really important to a patient's outcome. If we focus on the therapeutics with a pharmacologic angle, then NSAIDs are the first-line therapy. And that's because they actually work very well. And I think there's a lot of, you know, rheumatologists that compared to immunomodulatory treatments, NSAIDs feel like they are really small fry. And I actually think that the return uh, for their investment is quite good. And I have many patients that are on NSAIDs alone and have been on these agents for many years and have done very well. I think as we use NSAIDs in the news in the last decade or so, we have to consider cardiovascular risk. And so you have to take an individual patient with axial spinal arthritis and take that into account as you think about using NSAIDs, particularly high-dose and continuously. And so I am more cautious in older patients, certainly a patient with known cardiovascular disease we wouldn't use an NSAID in, In a patient with cardiovascular risk, for example, uncontrolled hypertension, I'm also a little bit more cautious. And then taking into account the bleeding risk is important, especially as patients get older and certainly effects on renal function. So those are the like short-term benefits. I think they work very well, but long-term risk, something to consider, particularly in our older patients or patients with comorbidities. So I think the other question that comes up for NSAIDs is do they modify the course of disease? And in particular, do they prevent damage from accruing in patients with axial arthritis? And this has been looked at in a couple of studies. Some other follow-up studies from observational data, including my own and from the cohort out of Germany, has shown... Shown that maybe cox-selective NSAIDs may have differential benefit, but I think the jury is a little bit out still in terms of whether NSAIDs will actually modify the course of disease.
1: And still having symptoms, and you're thinking about transitioning that patient with Spa over to a biologic. Dr. Gensler, how do you decide, first of all, when to kind of throw in the towel on NSAIDs when you feel like they've not had a good response? How do you decide whether or not to switch therapies in this situation?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think, first of all, it's always a shared decision, right? I don't make these decisions unilaterally. It's always sort of getting a sense of where the patient is, not just that they're not responding, but what's their preference? There are many patients that are very hesitant to escalate to immunosuppressive medications, especially as we emerge from a pandemic. So despite the data that suggests that these don't have a detrimental impact on people with COVID infections, but I think that it's got to be a shared decision. So, you know, if, if we think about like, what are the guidelines recommend in this situation? Well, they recommend two things before even considering escalation. One is Have you given the patient enough time on an NSAID? So I typically tell patients that it takes about 48 hours to see a benefit from an NSAID because some of our NSAIDs are longer acting and that they're not going to work right away. You need to give it two weeks before you're going to throw in the towel on that particular NSAID, unless, of course, they don't tolerate it, and then that's a separate issue and then factors also into decision to escalation. The guidelines, both the ACR guidelines from 2019 and also now the ULAR guidelines from 2022 – recommend two NSAIDs, two full dose of NSAIDs before escalating. I think that's reasonable. There is comparative effectiveness data suggests that there's not a lot of difference between NSAIDs. Sometimes patients come to us on NSAIDs that they've been using over-the-counter or on their own, and so I will give them credit for that trial, especially if they've used a full dose of that over-the-counter NSAID and then a prescribed NSAID before escalating to the next stage.
1: And let's say for the patient that you already have in a biologic that's still having ongoing inflammatory back pain symptoms, you know, clear active disease, how do you go about thinking about how to switch those patients or escalate therapy?
2: Yeah, so important because we really do not have a lot of treatment options here. So one thing I really try to avoid in patients is what I call the biologic spiral, And that is treating, you have a patient that's got ongoing disease activity or perceived disease activity, maybe their CRP is normal, maybe it was always normal. And so then you decide you're going to switch them to another biologic and you put them on something either within class or, you know, in another class, and then you keep switching them. And you can imagine the spiraling that happens as you go from one biologic to another. So I try very hard to, one, make sure that they have true inflammatory reasons to switch, because the greatest predictor of responding to a biologic is going to be objective inflammation with the CRP being most helpful, and if not that residual bone marrow edema on an MRI might be important too. So the first thing I do is labs, obviously measuring disease activity, but in the setting of a newly elevated C-reactive protein, that is enough for me to say that the patient has disease activity that warrants treatment change. So that's one approach. That's cheap and easy, and we can get that result quickly. If the CRP is normal, then I typically go on to imaging with an MRI, and that's what's recommended in the guidelines. When you have a patient on a biologic with uncertain disease activity, consider imaging to look for disease activity. And if that is true, then I will go on to switching. If I don't see any of that, but I'm still worried about disease activity, sometimes it's because we're looking in the wrong place. And so in a patient with established axial arthritis, say the SI joints don't have inflammation. Well, if they're fused in the SI joints, they won't have inflammation there. And then you might need to look in the spine for that residual inflammation. So those are some of the approaches that I use to thinking about whether to switch a patient empirically versus using objective information to help predict that they are going to respond to a switch. I also like taking a step back in this patient on a biologic with uncertain disease activity or disease activity that's measuring high is what else could be driving it. Sometimes it's because they've tapered the biologic themselves. Well, that's an easy one. Sometimes it's because there's comorbid conditions that are driving disease activity, in particular depression and anxiety, are reasons for patients to report higher disease activity. So really thinking about the patient holistically and recognizing that the way we treat patients isn't just about suppressing the immune system. It's about thinking about the driver of the disease activity and then addressing that specifically.
1: And finally... If we step back here a little bit, is there any evidence to support an aggressive RA-style treat-to-target approach for patients with axial spondyloarthritis at this stage?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, so if we go to TECORA, right, the data is so robust because it not only shows that by treating to a target, you improve clinical outcomes, you prevent radiographic progression. And so those data are absent in arthritis in general, actually, and not that radiographic progression has been studied. We do know that disease activity associates with radiographic progression. So patients that stay in a high disease state are more likely to progress than patients that are in an inactive state or a low disease activity state. So there's some associative data there. But it doesn't tell us that treating to a low disease activity or less target is going to improve outcomes. There is a study that was done for treat-to-target in axial spondyloarthritis, Tycho Spa, which actually did not meet its primary endpoint, which was looking at an ASIS health index as the primary endpoint, which is a function and health status endpoint. There are several reasons why that study may have been limited, and so I think the senses that it may have been the study design and really expert centers that were treating these patients more perhaps than we would do in general practice and also seeing them much more frequently than we might do in a general rheumatology practice that said i don't think we have evidence to say that we should treat patients to a inactive disease state and i think there are a lot of patients that may not get there and we could land up over-treating patients if we use a specific cutoff. I do think it's helpful to have treatment goals with patients, and that is dependent on the individual patient. And we can always be aspirational and aim for remission in patients at a group level, even at an individual level. I think patients look to us not just to help improve their disease activity, but to give them hope. And some of the ways we do that are by letting them see light at the end of the tunnel that we can improve their disease activity and at least aim for the stars with the remission.
1: It's great. A- aiming for the stars is a nice theme for this program. And as we come to the end here, I want to thank my guest for helping us better understand treatment and escalation for patients with spot. Dr. Gensler, as always, great speaking with you today.
0: Thank you so much. This industry podcast was sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. This episode, Assessing Disease Activity in Clinical Practice, Tools to Monitor AxSpa, is sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. The host and speaker have been compensated for their time. This program is intended for healthcare professionals. Here's your host, Dr. Ethan Craig.
1: For many rheumatic conditions, disease activity can be monitored relatively simply and with straightforward measures, with the RA Clinical Disease Activity Index being a great example. But for axial spondyloarthritis, this can be a little bit more complicated, as presentations of this condition can be difficult to measure, and a lot of our activity measures involve patient-reported outcomes. So... What are some of our primary obstacles that we run into when we're thinking about how to monitor disease activity in axial spondyloarthritis? I'm Dr. Ethan Craig, and joining me to talk about some of the obstacles disease activity monitoring for patients with axial spondyloarthritis is Dr. Leanne Gensler. Dr. Gensler is a rheumatologist and the director of the UCSF Spondyloarthritis Clinic at the University of California San Francisco Medical Center. Dr. Gensler, thanks for being here today.
2: Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So let's dive right in and talk about you know, one of the, I guess, granddaddies of the outcome measures for spondyloarthritis, the Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Disease Activity Index, or BASDAI for short. So Dr. Gensler, what does this tool measure, and what kind of role does it have in your clinical practice?
2: Yeah, so you know, I run a spondyloarthritis clinic, and so I measure this in all my patients that are coming in because all of my patients have spondyloarthritis. I, I recognize that it's actually a little bit more challenging if you're seeing patients with many different rheumatic diseases because... To have a specific PRO for individual patients with a disease is a little bit more challenging. The BASDI itself measures several components. It measures, of course, pain, both axial pain and peripheral pain. It measures morning stiffness. It measures fatigue. And it measures, in a sense, tender areas that might be tender to touch that might suggest enthesitis. And it is a non-weighted PRO that allows us to get a quantitative amount of disease activity in the ways that these diseases manifest with active disease, fatigue, pain, morning stiffness. It does have limitations because it is purely subjective. And partly because of that and because of its redundancy, a new disease activity was developed. This is now several years ago, which is the ASDAS, which actually is definitely more robust and allows us to incorporate the patient global and the C-reactive protein as an objective measure of inflammation. It's also not redundant and it's weighted. But the problem with it, of course, is that it requires you to have a CRP with a patient in clinic. And that obviously has limitations because many of us don't get labs before the patient comes into clinic. The other measures, of course, that can be used include the RAPID-3, and we've talked about this a little bit before, which at least is generic and can be measured in any patient coming into a rheumatology practice.
1: And that's a great overview of some of the at least partially patient-reported outcomes that we use. And to switch gears a little bit, what do you see as the clinical utility, and how often are you checking the metrics that we use in spondyloarthritis, like the Schober's test, the occipit or tragus to wall, lateral lumbar flexion, et cetera, in axial spondyloarthritis?
2: So patients love these, by the way. So if you're sitting in clinic with a patient, they like to follow their own metrology. I never do a tragus to wool. I know it's included in the basmi, but I actually don't think the overall composite of metrology is that helpful in clinical practice. I do do a measure of cervical rotation and of thoracic mobility and lumbar mobility And I do those once a year. These measures typically do change slowly over time. And so more frequent measuring will not necessarily yield a difference. They are also helpful if a patient has increasing disease activity or symptoms that you're worried about, because the things that will drive limitation in mobility include disease activity and damage. So I do them once a year. And really, that's an assessment of a surrogate for is the patient progressing. And if I see a change in the mobility from of these measures, then I might go on to imaging to look for radiographic progression. And then I definitely also consider them in the patient that has active disease. If you're looking for them to respond to treatment, they take a while. So, you know, we typically wait 12 weeks to assess response to a biologic treatment. And I would say be careful repeating these at three months or 12 weeks, because you may not see the change yet. It can often take up to six months to see these measures change if disease activity is driving mobility limitation.
1: Now let's turn a little bit to biomarkers, specifically talking about the CRP or C-reactive protein. So what role does this biomarker have on monitoring activity, and what do we know about how it impacts disease outcomes and treatment escalation?
2: Yeah, so I think about CRP, first of all, CRP is not elevated in all patients with axial arthritis and less so in women than in men. When it's elevated, it is a proxy for prognosis, and it definitely is a risk factor for progression. It also is the most predictive biomarker we have to, for response to treatment. So if you have a patient with axial arthritis and an elevated CRP, they are more likely to respond to biologic treatment than someone with a normal CRP. It's the only biomarker we have. I mean, we have said, obviously, the anthracite sedimentation rate too, but that is less helpful than the CRP in most patients with axial arthritis. And I like it because obviously it can change and it can go down when you treat a patient. So it is a helpful proxy for response to treatment. If I have a patient that has a persistent CRP elevation despite treatment, I definitely consider ongoing disease activity, but I also consider other drivers of CRP. In an axial arthritis population, if I have A CRP that's persistently elevated, I definitely think about inflammatory bowel disease, because that could also be driving inflammation.
1: Finally, let's take a moment to think about imaging. Do you tend to repeat imaging in patients with axial spondyloarthritis, and do you find that this helps to guide therapy to inform disease activity?
2: So you're asking about MRI imaging for disease activity. Yeah. for radiographic imaging, we don't repeat imaging as a standard approach anymore. I think we used to do this more, but it's a slow-to-change disease, and so you need at least two years before x-rays if you're going to look. I do repeat x-rays in a patient that I am worried about has progressed, whether they have poor prognostic markers like persistently elevated C-reactive protein, they're smoking, they have a change in their mobility, and I'm looking for progression, then I might do that. I only repeat MRI imaging in patients where I have uncertain disease activity on a biologic, and I'm considering switching them.
1: Well, that's a great way to round out our discussion on this topic, and I want to thank my guest again, Dr. Gensler. Thank you for taking a look at monitoring disease activity in AXPA with us. It was really, as always, a great pleasure to talk to you today.
0: Thank you for having me. This industry podcast was sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs.